1: You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 28 for April of 2018. My name is Mike.
2: And I'm Dave. And in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about shows that aired episodes that explored a different medium. And our show topics include a look at the newest time travel television entry from ABC called The The Crossing and some discussion surrounding season two of Jessica Jones on Netflix.
1: Yes, very disparate topics there. And we will also share with you our interview with Aaron Pierre of Krypton. He plays Dev M on that series. Really fun interview and uh, relatively spoiler free because there's not much to say about Dev M yet, although that may change in the near future. But we also want to warn you that we do have spoilers for our topics, even the ones like The Crossing which really only has the one episode that we're going to be talking about. But you really have to go see it first before you listen to our discussion. Otherwise, it'll ruin some of the some of the fun of that great premiere. And what a great pilot that was. And then, of course, Jessica Jones. Come on, season two. Spoilerific to the extreme, right? Yes.
2: Yeah, we will
1: be spoiling, no doubt. <laughs> so hopefully you've been enjoying those shows and can enjoy it. But if you are going to be skipping around or just want to avoid spoilers... Here are the time codes for today's topics. Medium Mixers, 159. Jessica Jones, 2015. The Crossing, 3907. Krypton Interview, 5608. All right, but of course, as usual, our discussion topic is completely spoiler-free, and we're Exploring an interesting topic that was brought to us by a listener, Linda, on the Facebook group, decided to suggest that we look into shows that have explored different mediums or medium crossing shows, I think is how she put it, where, you know, a regular live action TV show maybe does a little twist on it. And of course, the most obvious example of that is the musical episode, which seems to be de rigueur lately. And uh, we certainly have a couple of examples of that, but we also have some episodes of of shows, you know, new and old that have really explored some different ways of expressing the medium in comedic ways and sometimes just in innovative artistic ways. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So let's see what you came up with, because I think I, I may have been heavy on the musical episodes, but you went in a different direction, I think.
2: Well, I, I do have one, but, you, you know, in the spirit of full disclosure, as as I told you, and, and you know, you, you've known me for a while now, I am not a fan of these kinds of episodes. <laughs> I mean, I, I understand I may be in the minority and, and people love them. It's tough but, to do correctly, you know. Well, you know, I used to have in my email signature, just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> And it's interesting the way these episodes have been perceived by the fans. And again, for a lot of these shows, I'm clearly in the minority. But my first (laughs) show is Fringe from season three, episode 19, Lysergic Acid Dithalamide. Oh, great one. And, you know, this is one that employs animation. And here I really think the animation works because it is kind of an acid trippy (laughs) Yeah experience. And it also provided a way to get Leonard Nimoy's character William Bell back into the narrative, given that Bell had previously died in the show. Right, And at the time, fans really either loved it or hated it. And obviously, we know IMDb is not the end-all be-all, but I think most of us that really look at TV seriously, the ratings on IMDb are, are pretty indicative of what fans and critics think, and this one got an eight point eight, so fans critics alike really love this episode, but it took some time now in this episode, Walter uses LSD in an attempt to free Olivia 's mind from being inhabited by bell 's consciousness, so you know to say that it has that trippy feel would be an understatement, but because of that, because of the plot, it really worked for me and after I got over the initial shock that, hey, what's going on here? These are <laughs> cartoons. I'm watching Fringe. I really dug it.
1: Yeah, and it helps that Walter already has a comedic element to his character anyway. So if it had been about somebody else, then maybe it wouldn't have worked quite as well, but it definitely worked for him. And another show that I'm going to start with that definitely has some comedic elements and was able to get away with a musical episode way before that was a common thing for shows to try, especially genre shows is of course the pioneering show, Buffy, the vampire slayer. And of course, fans of that show know which one I'm talking about. Episode 607 once more with feeling the musical episode. And obviously I think a lot of people who try this these days don't put nearly, in fact, I know they don't put nearly as much effort into it as Joss Whedon did back in the day because he knew that a few of his cast members had musical talents. Some of them didn't, and specifically requested not to have singing lines in it, including, uh, I believe, Michelle Trachtenberg was one that didn't want to sing, and and even Allison Hannigan wanted to limit her singing in that episode. But obviously, this is one that really set the bar. Joss Whedon apparently spent six months writing the score, and Sarah Michelle Gellar, who did some great singing for many of the pieces in that, musical episode said it took something like 19 hours of singing and 17 hours of dancing in between shooting four other episodes in order to get the rehearsal in there. She says in the end, it was an incredible experience and I'm glad I did it and I never want to do it again. <laughs> but what a great, I mean, that was late in the series run season six that came at a turning point for the series as well, because This was right when uh, Spike was starting to declare his love for Buffy. Buffy's revelation to Willow that she was in heaven when she got resurrected by Willow. And Willow thought she was in hell and was rescuing her. And of course, Tara finding out that Willow made her forget an argument that they had about Willow's increasing dependence on magic for very trivial things. And of course that took Willow down a dark path. So not only was it just great from the musical standpoint, it was a pivotal episode to boot and just some great songs. You can pull them up on YouTube even now. And they just send chills down my spine, not to mention the amazing choreography that they put together as well. It might seem cheesy to some people now, but it really was uh, something that every show who has done a musical episode since has tried and failed to imitate basically.
2: Yeah. I mean, to use a label that Wayne uses all the time on sci-fi TV rewatch, this is the gold standard for this type of episode. And obviously I love Buffy, not one of my favorite episodes, but what I really like about this is that the Whedon family, I mean, if you really know anything about them, they're very musical and that, you know, either Joss or Jed, often writes the theme music for the show. And I I get it here. You know, I really do get it. And the other thing I'm surprised, though, is that some of the actors didn't want to at least give it a shot because I still contend the ones that make it, they can do everything. They can sing. They can
1: dance. I mean,
2: again, (laughs) that may not be their strong suit, but they can do it.
1: Right. And uh, thankfully, uh, people like Anthony Stewart Head, who plays Giles, is an amazing singer, <laughs> so they had that going for them as well. But yeah, definitely a great medium-crossing episode. Okay, now one that
2: really just didn't work for me, and apparently it didn't work for a lot of people, because, the again, the critics on IMDb 6.1 for The Flash episode 317
1: duet. Now, Well, this is the thing. We talked about shows that have cast members that can sing. I mean, how could you not do a musical episode with grant and and some of the others that just have huge musical talent even before this show it was well known
2: well you know i I really again i'm not a big fan of musicals but but one that i did see live had amazing seats original cast was rent and just because it's such a heart-wrenching play i don't know that i'd want to see it again because it just takes so much out of you but uh, the guy that plays, uh, you know, the, the detective. I can't think of his name in the I show. No. I was about
1: uh, to use his name as well because I'm drawing a blank. But he, I love the Rent soundtrack. Yeah,
2: right. I mean, he so obviously he can sing. So yeah, this was a crossover with Supergirl, John Jones and Monel of Earth 38 arrive on Earth one with a comatose Kara, hoping Barry's team can revive her. And the appearance of Music Meister, who's a villain from the D.C., comic universe right that helps <laughs> right controls people through song and first appeared on batman the brave and the bold which was an animated series on the cartoon network but i don't know you know i watched it the other day because i stopped watching flash so you know i tried to you know, do a little <laughs> bit of reading leading up to this episode and and took a look at it and and yeah i mean they can sing i mean obviously there's the glee connection right So these people can sing, but... And and it's Jesse L. Martin, by the way. (laughs) Right. But unlike the Fringe episode and the Buffy episode, I just didn't feel the connection to really what was going on in the overall narrative.
1: Right. And that can happen. And in fact, my second one that I want to bring up is the other contemporary one, which is The Magicians. And of course, that's the first thing I thought of when Linda brought this topic up, because The Magicians had just aired a musical episode in season three, which just had its finale last night as we're recording this. And episode 309 is called All That Josh. And it's the third musical episode that the series has done. They actually do, it seems like, a musical episode each season. And so perhaps this is going to become an annual thing. The first time they did it, it was just Quentin having a dream sequence where they sang uh, Taylor Swift's Shake It Off. And it was just kind of goofy. But then last season they did this Les Miserables tribute kind of thing and it just didn't work because, you know, the show does have a low budget and so they can't really pull out all the stops with the production values and it just kind of fell flat. But this year they did it right. And this particular one was using David Bowie's Under Pressure, which fit very well with what was going on in the episode as well. And basically there's this key quest. They're going on the quest for seven keys in season three. And they use one of the keys that's part of the quest called the unity key to communicate across their different locations. Cause some of them are in fillery. Some of them are in this trap that they're in. Some of them are in the library, which is on a completely different planet. And some of them are on earth. So they have to coordinate their voices somehow. And this key helps them do that. So it actually, comes across as a musical might on film or on stage where the different characters are singing in their different locations and just chiming in as their talents warrant. Because of course, again, like many series, there is a varying amount of musical talent on the cast. Uh, the actress who plays Katie is wonderful. Jay Taylor. And a couple of the other actors like Hale Appleman have wonderful voices, but they don't all have wonderful voices. But it's just so majestic. You've got the Munt Jack, this flying ship, wonderfully coordinated to the music. Because you know what? The thing about musical episodes, and I do love them when they're done right, is that it can accentuate the drama of what's going on in the scene. And I think that's what was really effective in this particular episode of The Magicians. All right. Sounds
2: good. Now, I'm not sure if this is exactly what Linda had in mind when she suggested the topic, because obviously musicals, animation, but Stargate SG-1 in its final season, season 10, episode 6, it was the 200th episode of the series. So they wanted to do something special, and there was a lot of angst involved with who gets to write this episode, And what they eventually settled on was that different writers would do little vignettes within the episode. Oh, cool. So that they all had their their names on it. But I chose this one because of, you know, the parody that they do here of their own show. And they certainly did it in episode 100. So I love the parody. I love the callback to the 100th episode, Wormhole Extreme which utilizes the whole show within a show narrative structure, like in Hamlet, for you guys that uh, were paying attention in high school. Or Midsummer Night's Dream, for that matter. Okay. And obviously employing parallels to the SG-1 crew. So what we have in episode 200 is a failed TV series that's now attempting to revive itself with a feature film And the director calls in the SG-1 crew for assistance. And we've got it all. We've got puppets. We've got the return of Jack O'Neill, which I really think... See, at this point, he'd left the show, and Ben Browder took over, and Claudia Black joined the cast, as did Lexa Doig. Awesome. Awesome.
1: As a doctor, of course. Of
2: course. But because Jack O'Neill's in it, I mean, he has that snarky attitude. That's just really delightful. So it really works in the scenes that he's in. We get to see the team at his cabin fishing. So, you know, if you're a fan of the show, but overall, it's this whole parodying of SG one and the really comedic requirements that these characters were forced to tangle with. So it's really well done the callback to wormhole extreme, which in and of itself is a parody of SG one. So, and here fans, critics alike love this episode.
1: Yeah, it sounds wonderful. And of course you can do that kind of thing when you've had 10 seasons and I think you're given a little bit more leeway, but I think the other common thread is of course that it provides a lighthearted mood to whatever episode you're doing. So usually it's a more happy, less conflict riddled Uh, episode although that might not be the case in my final example which is from eureka season four episode 21 do you see what i see now this was the 2011 christmas episode and if you recall by this time eureka was splitting its seasons into two halves so actually the first half of season four had a christmas episode i think it was episode 410 and then season 4b also had a christmas episode and so that's kind of a strange phenomenon that was able to happen in a single season. You're paying attention, Doctor Who? <laughs> exactly. It's kind of strange that way. But you know, sci-fi hasn't since really done 22 episode seasons. So that was one of the last shows that did that. But episode 421, the final episode of season four, was this experimental thing that they were almost trying to outdo their previous Christmas episode, "Oh Little Town," which was really well received. And so this time they decided to do different types of animation. I mean, you basically brought that up with a uh, fringe. And so this was crossing into the medium of animation in the show, a wave of light overtakes the inhabitants of Eureka because of a gift that Sheriff Jack Carter played by Colin Ferguson got for the kids And something called the Super Photon Generator, which explains how everything turned into a drawing, basically. And they use different animation styles. It starts off with traditional CGI, it goes into Looney Tunes, Claymation in the style of most holiday favorites, like, you know, Abominable Snowman, that kind of Christmas favorite, and even anime at one point, which is really cool. The episode is fun. It's frightening when the kids drop in a snow ninja just to make things more interesting. And then it eventually ends with a very warm and fuzzy holiday moment as everyone gets together for dinner at the smart house. So just a great, fun series anyway that has a lot of humor involved with it. But to do something like this where they could be a little bit more experimental was a a nice way to stretch the medium and allow the genre to explain away some of the cool things that they were able to do that would otherwise kind of strain reality a little bit.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, Mike, I don't know about you, but I'm really glad Linda had this suggestion because, you know, even though these aren't necessarily my cup of tea, it was so much fun going back and re-exploring some of these and also getting to know some of these shows that that I don't really watch, like I don't watch Eureka. And I guess the recognition that, There are a lot of shows that are doing this, and the fact that it's not my cup of tea doesn't mean I'm not for artists exploring their art and getting out of their comfort zone, because I think that's a necessary part of being an artist. So,
1: In some ways, that's what we're doing in discussing this topic, and being able to do research on shows we haven't even seen is kind of part of the fun of Sci-Fi Fidelity.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, the one show that, that I didn't mention that did it a few times is X-Files. So, like I said, great topic.
1: Thanks for the suggestion, Linda. Right. And of course, there were others that chimed in on Facebook. Fred Firestein brought up Stargate SG-1, the episode 200 that you did. We had one from Christopher Bork, who brought up the Buffy musical episode, but also the Angel puppet episode, which was not quite as good, which is why I didn't bring that one up, but it was still fun. Linda brought up lysergic acid diethylamide, but also brown Betty, which I believe was also on your list of possible topics, Dave. loved that episode. (laughs) And then they started to get off topic. They went into Star Trek, the city on the edge of forever and the Captain Proton episode of Voyager. And it really started to get into other ways of interpreting the topic that she came up with. But of course, Taltos was the one that suggested for me, do you see what I see from Eureka? She also mentioned changing channels. Supernatural, which kind of did a game show and a procedural and a sitcom all mixed into that Supernatural show. And she also mentioned Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the Hush episode, which of course was genre stretching or perhaps medium stretching in a, in a way that was just different for the script. But that was another way of interpreting it as well. So thanks to those of you who chimed in on Facebook to share your ideas for this wonderful topic that Linda came up with. All right, and we're going to dive right into Jessica Jones now. So if you haven't seen season one, and I've not quite scratched the surface of season two, I'm probably going to get pretty spoiled myself, right, Dave?
2: You are going to get spoiled. (laughs) That's okay. Now, the interesting thing for me, I've been trying to sell my wife on Jessica Jones for several years now. And finally, I told her, look, I need to watch season two for the podcast. So what often happens she's sitting on the couch with her laptop and i'm watching episode four and she goes you know this is really good like i told you so she saw season two before she saw season one hug <laughs> so you know interesting the way that happened but jessica jones season two which dropped march eighth, two thousand eighteen, 2018 years. and after season one dropped. So. Oh, wow. I didn't realize. Yeah. So for fans of the show, that's really something difficult. Fortunately, we had the Defenders where we got to see the character, Jessica Jones, appear here with some of the other Marvel superheroes. But what we know so far as season two begins is that this is the aftermath of Jessica having finally killed Kilgrave by snapping his neck at the end of season one. And her identity as a powered person, along with the defenders, you know, like Iron Fist, Luke Cage, Daredevil, it's all public knowledge now. People know who she is, much to her displeasure, because even though she just wants to be left alone and, and go on and be a private investigator, she's seen as this super vigilante who's become an easy target for the police to blame anytime a crime occurs that they can't explain. So. Already, she's got that certain attitude. So you can imagine what happens when the
1: police bring her in for something she didn't actually do. That just reminds me of at the beginning of season one, when she was serving a warrant, because that's, of course, one of the ways she got her money. The guy tries to escape and she just lifts up the back bumper of his car. It's like she doesn't necessarily draw attention to her abilities, but she also doesn't hide them. So I could see how that would get her into trouble.
2: Right. And that's the first indication in season one of what her power is. I mean, if you were unfamiliar with the character. Now, the other thing we know that Trish Walker still has her radio show, but she's been focusing her shows on the impact of the powered individuals. But what's happened is the well's kind of running dry. I mean, certainly Jessica's not going to appear on her show, but. Even the topics are starting to get old, so she's really scrambling to come up with something fresh.
1: And that's when things get invented and manipulated, right? Exactly. Now, Jessica's still making a living
2: as a PI, still has difficulty coping with the deaths of her family. And One of the things I love about moving into season two, and we certainly see this in season one, is the exploration of the relationships between Jessica and Trish and the seeds of season two are planted at the end of season one. Trish uses Simpson's pills in the fight against Kilgrave. And then Trish's mother produces documents that show that this shadow organization, IGH paid for Jessica's hospital bills after the accident. And it kind of all culminates when Jess says, maybe I am a freak but somebody made me this way. Oh, so they're exploring her origins or exactly. It sets the tone for season two. So what's changed? Well, the focus of the season has obviously shifted from Kilgrave to finding out what IGH did to Jessica and others to give them their powers. And partly because their sisters now adopted sisters, but, Trish has been pushing Jess to recover lost memories and for Jessica it's something she doesn't want to do but because she loves her sister she very often wants to give Trish what it is Trish wants but overall the tone and the mood is much less dark now that Kilgrave is dead and I know some people see that as a detriment and I certainly have read enough that season two is not as good as season one and I would argue that you're wrong. I think it's equally as strong. It's just different.
1: Right. If you're expecting a certain tone, maybe that would be a problem for you. But you have to be willing to accept different types of conflict. It's not always going to be about. I mean, Kilgrave was a very specific kind of bad guy. Right. And you couldn't you wouldn't be able to drill that. I mean, it's just too much with the mind control aspect of things. So you got to go in different directions.
2: Yeah. And I think the difference is that Jess is not as psychologically compromised now that Kilgrave is dead. And I mean, certainly Kilgrave resurfaces in the episode. I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But he is dead. There's no coming back from a snapped neck. (laughs) Now, the other thing, Malcolm is still clean, working as Jessica's assistant. I love Malcolm to death. His character is just so good. But but we find a little bit about him and his backstory that we didn't know. Number one, he tells her, he's like begging her, teach me, you know, you're the best. I want to learn. And then of course we see, if you remember at the end of season one, Jessica's office and home, it has just been devastated from, you know, the fight with Luke, the fight with Kilgrave. So there are bullet holes all over the place, big holes in the wall. So it's during season two Malcolm has tried to put her office back together which is sort of a metaphor for her putting her life back together as well I like it yeah now the other thing we learn about him is he apparently had a full ride to college he wanted to go into social work but drugs got the better of him and he got the boot from college but we learn that his drug habit was initiated by Kilgrave that was all part of how Kilgrave kept tabs on Jessica. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. Now, one of the things about Jessica, certainly in season one, she has the love interest in terms of Luke Cage, but Luke's gone. And we now have this handsome single building supervisor now on the premise and Rocky start to their relationship. But after she saves his son's life, because he knows who she is. So his son, who's like about eight, he thinks Jessica walks on water, but she saves his life. And, and once he realizes it wasn't her fault, it was the kid, the relationship is able to develop. And it turns out, though, he's a world class forger who ends up providing Jess credentials so she can pose as a psychiatrist enter a facility as part of her igh investigation and of course during the course of the season they become much closer although he sort of disappears as we get to the end but while she's at that psychiatric facility she learns of this dr carl who apparently experimented with octopus dna
1: (laughs) of course as one does
2: oscar's also an artist he's got his son Vito, crazy x But he provides Jessica with that sense of normalcy, which surprisingly she gravitates towards. I mean, her relationship with Luke, my wife loved it in season one. I mean, she really, really likes them as a couple, but they're both powered. So there's that that, you know, no, they're not a normal couple. They'll never be a normal couple. So Oscar gives her a little bit of that. Now, I mentioned Jerry Hogarth played by Carrie Ann Moss and critical character in season one. Well, she learns she has ALS in this season and the partners want to push her out because of a clause in the contract. So her relationship with Jessica is strained, but this does enable them to kind of get back together and help each other. She wants Jess to find dirt on her partners as leverage, which of course, she's able to do. But it brings in through the course of this some information about IGH because Jessica and Malcolm tracked down this woman who's homeless, used to be a nurse at IGH. And, of course, they're trying to pump her for as much information as they can. But they also need to keep her safe because somebody is apparently killing IGH-associated individuals.
1: Hmm. Okay. Well, it's cool that they could tie these in together because obviously IGH is a overarching arc for her origin story. And the relationship between Jerry and and Jessica can be multivaried and lots of different motivations coming at it because we saw that even back in season one.
2: Yeah. But what I like that they did here is this nurse apparently really did work at IGH, but she tells Jerry that there was a boy at IGH that could heal people. And of course, she's found out she's got ALS, and there is no cure for ALS at this point. But the catch is he's in prison, and it just so happens Jerry's one of the most successful lawyers in New York. <laughs> How convenient. Yeah, she gets him released. He agrees to heal her, but it's a scam that these two are running. And oh, a superpower scam? Yeah, so <laughs> Jerry's convinced initially that he helped her, but it's certainly doesn't turn out to be the same and and when she finds out or at least she's still in the believing stage she wants dr carl to continue his work since he can presumably help people who have no other option so if that's not bad enough what they do to her they rip off her apartment well jerry's the wrong person (laughs) to rip off in this case and the way she gets payback. I'm not sure this is really what she expected, but again, she convinces the nurse that the healer's cheating on her oh. <laughs> and gives her a gun and then sits in her car while the girl shoots and presumably kills. The con man. I mean, we don't necessarily see the aftermath, but we hear the gunshot. That's Kilgrave level manipulation. (laughs) You're not kidding. Now, one interesting thing that that they did here, episode 207, which you know falls right in the middle, they do a flashback to age 1920 for Jess and Trish, and it's basically the mom filling Jessica in on her past. And and you know, you mentioned Jessica's origin story, and certainly the whole story about IGH is part of it, but it's also part of her origin story post-car accident. And what we see, Trish is a pop star with a music video, and we certainly knew she was a child star. We learned that in season one, but we, we see more of her, and we see that Jessica is in college and that Trish is paying her tuition. But after watching Jessica struggle with alcohol throughout both seasons, to learn that Trish really has a severe drug problem and is a total mess came a little bit as a surprise so it's something you know she's still battling although she hasn't fallen off the wagon and in fact there's a scene where Jessica says she needs a drink and and is then surprised that Trish actually has a bottle in her apartment And, and she tells her no it's not for me it's for you I don't I haven't you know I've been strong but the mother reappears now this is jess's mother and i'll get to that in a second because you say well wait a minute jess's mother is dead well she was only mostly dead
1: <laughs> but okay she,
2: she brutally kills jessica's boyfriend and at this point in jessica's life i mean she's a normal college student yeah i mean she's got the goth kind of look going for <laughs> her but you know she's pretty normal now trish has become obsessed with becoming powered And we see her in season two using Simpson's inhaler, which basically amounts to a combat enhancer. And we don't really see how she gets it, but we do see in season one that she knows Simpson is taking pills that produce the same effect. And at one point when, you know, the crisis with Kilgrave has reached its high point, she takes the pills and, you know, it just has superpowers, if you will. I mean, she is now combat enhanced. Of course, it sends her into uh, respiratory arrest and takes her to the hospital. But that storyline that she's been in Jessica's shadow for a while now in terms of being a hero so that she now has a taste of what it's like for Jessica. But we see her using this inhaler. And clearly it's not for asthma because you can see her pupils dilate. And she beats up these guys that are attacking Malcolm and then he and he's beaten up pretty badly and she pressures him to using the inhaler. So he'll heal more quickly, which when we know what Malcolm has struggled with in terms of drugs and he doesn't want to, he tells her no, but she's so persistent. Of course, she eventually runs out of the drug. And hits on Malcolm, goes to bed with him, says she feels betrayed by Jess and all that. But at the end of the day, she's jealous of what Jess has and she doesn't. And and, and it's not unlike, I I would think, a lot of siblings
1: face from time to time. Right. And of course, that would be a normal situation for any pair of siblings, but particularly someone who has the history that Trish has and knowing her sister as she does with the
2: one time or another right so she tracks down dr carl convinces him to give her powers and he's willing to go through with it and and of course jess arrives in the nick of time and, and stops her carl kills himself and then trish of course ends up in the hospital Now, the I.G.H. investigation, Jessica's superhero origin story, you know, in season two, somebody or something appears to be going after powered individuals. And it turns out that it's Jessica's mother who supposedly died in the car accident 17 years prior. And during the course of things, this character named Wizard, who's this chubby, you know, mid 20s guy who basically comes to Jess that basically, hey, I'm a. Powered individual as well and she's looking at him like okay yeah right (laughs) and and he's got super speed maybe not as fast as yo-yo but (laughs) or the flash (laughs) or, or the flash but but she's now come to the realization that she was made so the search for dr kozlov who we saw in season one as simpson's super soldier doc reveals that his death may not be natural or even accidental so it's as if somebody's trying to eliminate loose ends and that's when she tracks down this dr leslie hansen who claims that igh is actually good and that it brought jessica back from the dead after the car accident so we don't know if that's dead dead Or (laughs) or what? I mean, her mother's clearly had physical deformities that over the years, Dr. Carl has tried to address. and, And while she's forced to wear a wig, you know, she can pretty much go about her business. So that's where Jessica got her powers. But her mother is much stronger than her. And the two of them end up not unlike Patsy's problems with her own mother certainly you know jessica and her mother clash if you've been alive why didn't you come find me why didn't you tell me and certainly we understand that but it's been difficult eventually jess has to turn her mom into the police she's incarcerated for murder but we understand at this point that now the police are going to be happy this woman's just you know off the street But Jessica killed Kilgrave in season one, and and it appears she killed Simpson, although we don't necessarily have verification from what I can tell. But she kills this prison guard that's been harassing her mother, and killing does not come easily to Jessica Jones. So, you know, we're going to have to see how that really impacts her in season three, but eventually her mother kidnaps her, they go on the run, heading for the border, but now kind of like in season one she's a psychological
1: prisoner this time of her mother oh yeah well she's probably in fact in some ways more vulnerable to her mother's manipulation because of that yeah
2: but along the way they encounter a terrible car and truck crash and the two of them get out save the victims but of course it alerts the authorities to their presence and at the end I won't spoil this. Her mother does get killed, but I'm not going to tell you who actually kills her mother. But it leaves
1: a pretty big cliffhanger. Is that it? (laughs) it, it, Well,
2: it it certainly does. And and with a theme that uh, we we certainly talked somewhat at length in this discussion. But I, I think season two is every bit as good as season one. It's just different.
1: Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's good that the first Marvel show that showed up on Netflix to really set the bar and the tone in some ways for the other outings on Netflix, the for it to come back for season two and, and be successful in a sophomore season is important. And I don't think people need to necessarily set the bar specifically for the same exact outing to happen again. You know, you got to give it breathing room. And I think the way you described it, it certainly sounds like it was successful in doing that.
2: I okay, know talking about setting the bar when you're doing time travel, that you know, you and I have a pretty high bar. So, how'd the, <laughs> how'd the crossing do?
1: That's exactly right. Not only are we going from an established show to one that's just starting out, so it has a lot to prove, but the crossing, who's had its pilot air on April 2nd, it also was released early. They like to do that early digital release so people can get some word of mouth going. And it's important because it's an ABC show. Because I think there's a lot of people unfairly in some ways are saying that this network is trying again for the next lost. And they even advertised the crossing as from the network that brought you lost is like, well, what's that got to do with anything?
2: Well, but I guess I, my feeling is why wouldn't you try to produce the next loss? I mean, it's going to be <laughs> yeah. tough, but why not make the effort?
1: Yeah. And I think because we're in such peak TV times here, To have a high-concept genre show, especially on network television, doesn't always work for the big networks, especially since they have to get higher ratings to meet their advertising standards than some of the cable networks do. But as time travel goes, and you know I have very high standards in this regard, it did a great job. I even went into this, if you can believe it not knowing that it was a time travel show. Did you have that same experience where you didn't realize what you were getting into?
2: (laughs) Uh, No, because I, I did read the promo for it that 150 years in the future.
1: Okay. I went in blind and it was like, wait a second. No one told me this was time travel. I was very pleasantly surprised. And the reviews of the pilot have been cautiously optimistic with that caveat about ABC trying to capture the next lost. And there are some, characters that need to be built. You and I always talk about how if the characters are likable, it goes a long way. The story is very strong here. The premise is very strong. Some of the characters need a little bit of building. And so I think that's the main thing I would put in there as, as something that has to come after the pilot. But the thing is pilots are so difficult anyway. And so if you have this really great first outing as this show does, that goes a long way towards having a forgiving audience and an engaged audience And one of the ingredients that I think was one that people didn't maybe expect is the highly contested lead actor status of Steve Zahn. Apparently a lot of networks were trying to get a vehicle for Steve Zahn to come onto television, which is kind of surprising. I mean, he's a great comedic actor in the movies and he does a great dramatic role here. And I think he's perfect for the part of Sheriff Jude Ellis, who's, basically a small time sheriff in Port Canaan, Oregon, although he wasn't always small time. He did escape uh, some kind of trouble in Oakland, California, maybe related to him being an alcoholic, maybe related to some botched police uh, maneuver that he did. We're not quite sure at this point yet, but I just love his character. And in fact, he even has a deputy that's kind of comedic in a way. So it does kind of allow Steve Zahn to play on some of his humor skills. Right.
2: Yeah. Now, you know, you mentioned the the character building. And of course, how, how much can you really build in one episode? But I think they did a nice job with his character, with the FBI agent, Emma Ren, and then with Reese, the one that got separated. That's the little girl's mother. So with those three, I think they did a nice job. But my problem is this what I'm going to call the sheriff trope, which <laughs> seems to be cropping up every darn show that I watch. It's a sheriff With something in his past, he's either divorced
1: (laughs) or single or alcoholic or something. And, I, you know, what's that all about? Because not to mention, that's just a character motivation for them to be complex and deep as a person. But also the idea of the feds coming in and sweeping in and taking the sheriff's investigation away from him, I think is also could be considered a trope as well.
2: (laughs) Yeah. and, And as soon as he
1: questions, all they do is say. Oakland. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> what happened in Oakland, California? Well, and also his partner, I think, it, or his deputy says, you know, you must've seen a few dead bodies in your day in Oakland. Sure. Sure. I did because this case begins with a dead body washing up on the beach and you get the impression that this is not a very common occurrence in Port Canaan. And of course, when they get there, it's not just one dead body. It's hundreds of dead bodies washing up from the ocean and they only find out of hundreds dead, only 47 people alive. And that's what sets the whole mystery up. Because, of course, the whole visuals, the opening scene, for example, of this series is just really cool with a bunch of people deep underwater with the light barely making it down through the you know many feet of water that's above them. And this is the kind of thing that they use for dream sequences all the time. And so you think that's what we're even viewing here. But no, this is really where hundreds of people have found themselves deep under the ocean. And so for the mystery to unfold from that is really kind of cool. You mentioned FBI agent Emma Wren. I think this is a character that needs to be developed a little more, too. She doesn't have the deepest personality but she's a strong character in terms of leadership and doing some of the things that we always wish characters in law enforcement would do, such as not trusting people. <laughs> I thought that was great that she, that she expressed that from the very beginning, but she is played by Sandrine Holt of Homeland. She tries to take control of the situation. Once it's determined that no ship sank, no planes crashed nearby. Where did these people come from? She takes the initial reports from some of the survivors that tell her that they're refugees fleeing a future in which Apex, which is described as man's next evolution, our genetic destiny are in charge of the future that they fled 150 years in the future in a world that is hostile towards normal humans. In fact, they describe it as an extermination that that's going on, that they're fleeing. So they didn't really know that the time machine would spit them out underwater. And so they lost obviously a good amount of the people who were trying to flee to the past. But notably when they find out that there's even just 47 people left, she says in this group, there are going to be some bad actors. I don't trust desperate people. She tells one of her assistants. So I very much appreciate that kind of attitude her character came to america at age 6 so she herself is an immigrant and so even though agent ren isn't the most compelling character right right off the bat the fact that she realizes that in this group of 47 people who seem to be refugees and sympathetic there's going to be one or two bad seeds right oh sure and, and
2: it's setting up that working together motif that almost undoubtedly will occur and and that's fine i i really think her working with Steve Zahn's character, uh, Sheriff Ellis, really could be, you know, certainly a, a strong point here. But one of the things that I wonder about and we talk about this with a show like Travelers, will we
1: ever get to see the future from which they come? I would guess not. But the reason I say that is because we already saw in this pilot episode the character that Natalie Martinez plays, Reese clearly demonstrate that she has powers (laughs) that she has enhanced abilities so she's got to be apex right i would think so so she doesn't look any different from anybody else and so i think that's probably all we're going to get they don't really need to show us the future but what i do like is that they do mention little hints here and there that allow us to form our own picture of the future for example when they first wash up on shore rebecca the leader guy's wife, I guess you could say when she first arrives, she marvels at the stars. She's never seen anything like that. And when Sheriff Ellis questions, one of the children whose name is Leah, you know, I know where that name comes from. That that's a biblical name, isn't it? She says, what, what's that? What's the Bible? You know, She has no idea what he's referring to. And so there's a lot of things that give you little tiny hints that things are not exactly as they should be. And, uh, so I like that way that they kind of create a picture for us of the little touches that make their world so different from ours. Yeah. Now Reese Terminator.
2: Sarah yeah. Connor
1: Chronicles. And that's, what's interesting too. Her name is Reese. And I was about to say that a lot of the characters among the survivors, the refugees have biblical names. There's Leah, there's Rebecca, there's Caleb, there's Thomas. I mean, these are all names from the, from the Bible. So I thought it was interesting that Reese did not fit that mold because of course she doesn't in a lot of ways. She's separated from the group when she's trying to save her daughter Leah. And it's interesting that for the longest time, no one in the story knows that Reese is Leah's mother. Only we as the audience know that because we saw her at the beginning of the episode, but she is pulled out by a fishing boat long from where the others were found on the beach And she immediately starts to show, well, not immediately. It's kind of subtle. She's just sitting in a restaurant waiting to hear if there were any other survivors anywhere. And she hones in on the sound of a television where she kind of shuts out all the sound around her in the diner and is able to focus just on one point and follow the sound back to where the television is behind the bar So she can find out about Sheriff Ellis and how he found a bunch of bodies washing up on shore. And that's where she heads next. But did you know from that point already what was going on, Dave?
2: Well, I mean, I had a a somewhat of a sense. I mean, I I
1: started to suspect.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And and I like the fact that she had the sense to lay low. Right. I mean, there's really no reason. But how many times have we seen this kind of a situation unfold and the character does something stupid to draw attention to him or herself and but not not here?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. She seems to almost have soldier like training in addition to having these superpowers, because just because you have the ability to jump really high or rip a shotgun out of a steel reinforced (laughs) case as she does steal the sheriff's shotgun out of his car i mean that doesn't mean you come with built-in training on how to act and how to stay low lay low like you said but i do like that the characters that we meet some of them we instantly trust such as caleb who is really the go-between between the refugees and agent wren He says that they were the first to attempt this. Now, I think that was an interesting thing for him to start off with, because we do learn later from Thomas that there are others that have traveled there before this group. And so I'm wondering if Caleb thinks they were the first to attempt this, but that certain people know that the time machine has been used for others to flee to the past who have a very specific agenda. And this is where it's going to get interesting because it's the old Who can we trust? Who's a alien inside a human body, (laughs) you know, body snatcher type scenario where we don't know who to trust. And, And sometimes that can be overplayed and and tough to deal with. But I think they've set up a really nice way of doing it here.
2: Well, and they also set it up, you know, for the big reveal at the end of the episode, which, you know, I'm sure you'll get to in a few minutes.
1: Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and mention the character that's dealing with that played by Jay Carnes of The Shield and also of Twelve Monkeys, and another great time travel show. He plays Craig Lindauer, who's the deputy undersecretary of Homeland Security, and he takes Agent Wren's report. Now, an interesting detail that I noticed after watching this pilot a second time is that he pulls her aside. They're about to go into a meeting to have a briefing with all the ADs of Homeland Security, But he said, you know, I don't want to sit in the conference room. Can we talk about it out here? (laughs) And really, he's just wanting to keep everything under wraps. You know, he tries to pass it off as these people are deluded. They're probably part of a cult. This whole thing doesn't make any sense with their heightened senses and their fast twitch muscle development and things that are written down in this report. And uh, Ren seems to accept his help because, of course, he does help her set up this camp away from the beach that has, you know, lodging for them and a little bit more comfortable environment for them to settle down in. And I I feel like Caleb is very appreciative of Agent Wren and what she's able to do for their group. But you can see already in this pilot episode that some of the members of the refugees are starting to get a little antsy because even though they know this is much better than where they came from, you know, how long are they going to sit on this beach and how long are they going to be basically prisoners? while the investigation goes on. And, uh, and I love that aspect of it. The fact that the refugees are very sympathetic and then introducing the mistrust through this person you would least suspect because of course, Thomas, the one rabble rouser in the group of refugees wants to talk to the president. He has a secret. He says, we're not the first ones to come here and is able to share his secret with agent Wren, but wants to talk to someone with real power And who is that person? Well, Craig Lindauer, deputy undersecretary of Homeland Security, who it turns out is one of these earlier arrivals from the future. And I love how they reveal it. He asks Thomas, would you recognize these people who came earlier by sight? And Thomas has the light bulb go on above his head. Uh Oh, (laughs) right. Because it sets up
2: so many possibilities. He says, you wouldn't believe how long I've been here.
1: Well, what does that mean? Does he not age? Did he come as a child? Or or is it just something where he had predecessors deep in history that built up an organization across the whole world? You know, who knows what he could mean by that. But for all this to appear in a pilot, that's pretty remarkable Yeah, because they had a lot to set up. And to compel us with an ending like that. I mean, they even dropped in some details about one of the refugees, Hannah, who talks about, you know, it's not as bright in our time as it is here. Can I borrow your sunglasses, Mr. HSI agent, (laughs) whose name is Roy? You know, and they kind of have some kind of thing going where they're starting to bond. Roy knows they're not supposed to consort with these refugees, but he does kind of, you know, Hannah's a pretty girl and So they are already setting up these subplots that you know are going to develop into more. So really good pilot and a really great premise that just needs a little bit more development of characters. But like you said, there's a lot of characters to introduce in this introductory episode. There's 47 refugees. We don't have to meet all of them, but there's the different law enforcement agents, the characters within the refugee group that are maybe more forefront, and of course the underlying conspiracy itself with the people who have arrived in the past and the fact that agent Rand realizes that there could be more apex out there or even in the camp itself we don't know who's a time traveler human or apex
2: right right yeah that and you said 47 survivors there were 47 survivors and lost oceanic
1: I, no, <laughs> was I, they really no I just made that up <laughs> We'll see if they are able to recapture that. I don't think anything's ever going to capture the uh, audience of Lost, but I do think they've set up a compelling mystery. Time travel is all the rage these days, and I think they've got a lot of potential here. So we'll see where this goes, but I'm cautiously optimistic along with the rest of the critics. Yeah, absolutely. So far, so good. Um, I'm looking forward to episode two. Now, one show that is brand new that is really grabbing a lot of the comics readers by storm is Krypton on Sci-Fi, and we were able to talk to one of the actors from the series, Aaron Pierre, who is a British actor whose IMDb page is only 4 credits long and only goes back to last year, 2017, so he's really getting his start and coming out of the gate strong because he had a couple of roles on the UK productions of prime suspect 1973 and the a word, but his star immediately rose to a regular role as Antonius on sky TV's historical fantasy Britannia, which apparently is also on Amazon. I, I think I might check it out. It's kind of like Vikings meets the crown or something like that. Oh, you know, nice. it's it definitely got some fantasy elements in it as well. So he's on that show currently along with Krypton, but he has a very small part on Krypton Who? just pulls you in the charisma of this guy who plays Dev M on Sci-Fi's Krypton whose hidden depths have yet to be plumbed we spoke to Aaron recently about some of the initial mysteries surrounding his character who's only been in a few scenes so far but i think that's about to change as you'll hear in this interview and we wanted to know what Dev M's motivations might be moving forward so here's Aaron Pierre telling us a little bit more about his character hello aaron
3: Hey,
4: how's it going?
1: Thanks so much for joining us today. We're very excited to talk to you today about Krypton and your character, Dev M, who really seems like he has some hidden depth. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you about him.
4: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, no, thanks for your time.
2: Now, Hardcore Superman fans or those who like to nitpick with comics research, which is a <laughs> lot of people out there, know that Dev M was at various times depicted as a juvenile delinquent who attacked Superboy. Yes, Phantom. Right. Yeah. Phantom Zone criminal. And even at one point, not a Kryptonian at all. <laughs> yeah. So do you have a theory or were you told why your character received this particular namesake from the Superman legacy?
4: Ah, uh, well, I don't know specifically why I have the name, but I, I do know that, as you mentioned in the comics at various different points, he's been various different people uh, with various different sort of motivations, but I definitely think that the one we've got in Krypton right now, I think he's you know I think we're now establishing a new dev M, you know not the juvenile delinquent or necessarily you know the criminal of the phantom Zone. I think we're we're now sort of, you know, with all respects to, you know, any way he's been depicted in the past, we're sort of taking this opportunity to, to see where we can where we can go with it now as well.
1: Okay. It's interesting that you say that because I feel like many viewers might have preconceptions about him being a villain. Oh, my God. Yeah,
4: totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Not only because of his name, but also because, you know, he's promised to the main characters true love. But he's also quite devoted himself to Light Azad. Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, encourages her to be a warrior even though he doesn't always agree with her choices. Is that accurate to say it that way?
4: I, I, I may be biased, <laughs> but I don't think I don't think he's a villain. That's, you know, my sort of perspective on him. I don't see him as a villain. You know, don't get me wrong, you know, in episode one, for example, what we see of Dev in episode one is, you know, we see somebody who is uh, militant. We see somebody who is devoted to the cause. Uh, we see somebody who is, you know, when in work mode, he is unable. It appears in episode one to be flexible in any way. He he doesn't seem to be malleable. He seems very sort of straight down the line and and unmoving. You know, and it doesn't it doesn't move. However, there is a lot more to Dev. You know, in the coming episodes and later on in the series, we slowly begin to peel back the sort of hard exterior that Dev puts on. And I think this hard exterior he puts on is actually subconscious. I don't think he, he does it consciously. I think he's sort of been he's sort of been trained and it's been instilled in him so much so that it's not even intentional. You know, when he's in work mode, that's just how he is. But you know, we, we you know we slowly get to peel back and, and reveal the sort of humanity to him, the empathetic side, the loving side, at times hopelessly loving, the you know, the, the the side that wants to encourage and spur people on. And over time, you know, hopefully Dev will get to reveal more of his character. Um yeah.
2: Well, and then there's the mystery of the scars on his back. And in these initial episodes, we don't hear too much about the M family, the way we do with the L's, the Vexes and the Zods. But I presume your character has a troubled past with his family, or should we look elsewhere for the source of those scars?
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, in regards to uh, dead scars, it's something which he's not in any way nervous to reveal it. Um, He's very aware of it and... You know, he's not nervous for anybody else to see it. He's come to peace with it. However, it does haunt him, and not because of being you know, a scar in and of itself, but because of how he received the scar, where he received the scar, and the implications of that scar. That's what haunts him about that. It's not the physical presence of it. It's, it's what it represents to him. Which is what haunts him. He he can't. He can never forget it now. You know, it's potentially he would be able to find a way to overcome it if there was not a constant, permanent reminder, but there is, and and that's why when he speaks about it, it evokes so much emotion. I think
1: that was a good tease because now I'm really looking forward to seeing the uh, story behind that. <laughs> but <laughs> I w- kind of wonder: would you characterize Dev M? As this rigidly moralistic character with unwavering respect for authority, because it seems like he believes in following orders no matter what. Mm. Is that right?
4: I would. mm, mm. I think historically for the House of M. Yes. You know, (laughs) his ancestors and his predecessors, anybody that came before him. Yes, they did have an unwavering respect for authority. Although they are always, you know, they, they always manage to work their way and maintain their position at a high level of the military guild. They also have this unwavering authority for whoever is on the same level below or above them, whoever. And anybody that they believe to be on their team, essentially, they have this unwavering respect for. So, yes, Dev does have that. In addition to that, though, he is, he is not them. So he is constantly referring to his moral compass, constantly trying to grow, but it's difficult for him because it's like when you, when something has been instilled in you so hard and for so long, sometimes it's so difficult to break that sort of mold, but he tries to in whatever way he can manage to validate it. Am I making sense?
1: Totally. Yeah. (laughs)
4: Yeah. yeah so he he tries he tries to break the mold in whichever way he can validate it to himself. He's a very meticulous thinker and a very meticulous man, and that extends into the way he thinks and his his mentality towards things so you know he's constantly trying to break it, but yeah he does and he and he makes sure he validates it to himself first um but yes, he's totally up for uh, you know having new perspectives and 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 new ways of being absolutely
2: so what part of your experience on the show has felt the most like you were on another planet or in a completely alien society In other words, what has been the most immersive part of working on the set of krypton
4: yeah, I mean everything <laughs> it's just it 's it's just been a dream come true, and then you know I, when I was younger you know i I read comics and I I was invested in these worlds, you know, whenever I could manage to get the funds to buy a comic, I would. Because when you're a kid, you do it unconsciously, but reading comics, you know, when I was of that age, that was my first experience of sort of consciously allowing myself to just let my imagination go wild and, you know, like really believe these characters and, you know, really believe that there was a place that existed like these places that I was reading about and where they did have powers. And so to, to now have the opportunity which I'm so honoured to have to actually be a part of that myself is just it's sort of well it is surreal and it's it's it's, it's still processing now to be honest with you, dude. It's um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's and you know walking on set and you know, seeing like the fortress of solitude, it's like, dude, it's, it's like, <laughs> this is crazy, man. Like, but it's it's amazing. It's it, it truly is amazing, and it just made everyday special because it it was such a special set with such special people involved and such invested people involved that no matter what may or may not have been going on outside when you came in it was just everything was at peace and it was just like okay let's just go and create something fun and and have a good time so it was it's just it's just an amazing experience i've got so many fond memories of it even though it's only very recently
1: now of course we're only a little bit into the series at the time of this interview but is there an episode that we can look forward to in which Dev M is more central to the story. And what can you tell us about what we can expect to see from your character, even if it's just an episode number that we can look forward to?
4: Yeah. I mean, in, in episodes, <laughs> in, in episodes five and six, Oh, you'll get to see Dev. Like I just said, you know, Dev, in any way you can try and grow and, and break the mold he will and in eps 5 and 6 he is presented with a situation which requires that but it requires it not in the way dev would like it to present itself because dev he what he'd like ideally is a, a sufficient amount of time to process things and sort of work it out but he's presented with a situation which requires instantaneous action and with, with you know, just immediate effect. So he doesn't have time to process it. So really, that's when it comes down to just his heart and not his head. And he has to act on something and he becomes part of a storyline, which is, you know, up until this point, I imagine many viewers would not expect Dev to be a part of. They would really not expect him to, to allow himself to go where he, where he ends up.
1: Well, that sounds very enticing. So uh, I'm looking forward to viewing those when they come out, but thank you so much for joining us and talking to us today, Aaron Pierre about Krypton. It's been a pleasure.
4: Dude, no worries at all. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I love Den of Key, by the way.
1: Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Aaron. (laughs) Thanks so much.
4: Thank you, dude. Take care. All the best.
1: Okay. So episodes five and six, everybody, (laughs) that's where you get to see what Dev M is all about and maybe see him, uh, switch sides or i'm not sure what to take from what aaron said there but he was a great guy to talk to and was very forthcoming in a non-spoilery way <laughs> and hopefully he won't get in trouble <laughs> yeah exactly no i think he did a great job of uh, couching it in enticing language but we hope you enjoyed our discussion of the crossing and jessica jones and our interview from aaron pierre of krypton But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity.
2: And as for May, we're looking at the Lost in Space reboot for one of our topics, and the other one's still up in the air, but we will have a timeless interview to share with you. Now, in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud.
1: And we do take suggestions for future topics as Linda shared with us on Facebook. So just let us know what you'd like us to talk about on social media, or you can also send an email to sci fidelity at gmail.com. And thanks again for listening and we'll see you next month.